RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 5, Episode 17. Response to Cornell University Letter Regarding Fan Publications, January 12, 1973. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Welcome back to the Trek Files, all you Star Trek fans. <laughs> all you Star Trek historians, yes, all you canonistas, I know. I say that lovingly, of course. And especially all you Trekophiles spelled with an F. We've got another one of these back-in-the-day episodes for you again. We're going to look at the, some roots of Star Trek, and in a way that maybe you hadn't considered. So, off the bat, you know the routine, you know the drill. You know the excitement. Go find our document of the week this week at Facebook, facebook.com slash the Trek Files. It's always there every week. Take a listen. Here's an audio sample. And then I'll be right back with this week's special guest. Please forgive this form letter to answer your inquiry. Gene Roddenberry's volume of mail since the New York Star Trek convention has become so great he cannot reply personally and still handle his new television and motion picture assignments. The following is a list of information which either answers your question or gives you a place where it can be answered. Please accept Gene's very sincere appreciation for your interest in the series and your continuing support. All right. We've got some clues here. We have a cover letter from a gentleman at Cornell from January 1973, gang. And we've got the clue that Gene's mailbag has exploded since the New York Star Trek convention. So March 72. There you go. We're in that sweet spot of time, 72-73. The animated series is about to be deemed commercially viable. So we're right there, and here is the uh, what consists of the Star Trek office, Gene's office, and whoever his secretary is at the time, putting together this two-page flyer of um, very, uh, you know, fan-driven, purely fan-driven, because there is no corporate anything Star Trek. That's what's so shocking. That's what's so revolutionary. And it's a time that our guest this week knows very well. I'm thrilled to welcome back to the show because we've got so much more to talk about. Jacqueline Lichtenberg, who I want to say pioneering fan fiction writer and also a writer all these years of the time. I'm not trying to put you up on the dusty shelf, Jacqueline, because you're very, very tuned into what's going on. But this is a special time. I'm glad you're here to talk about us. And thank you for coming back to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, so what what comes to mind? I, you know, I'm always I love history of all kinds, and I'm always trying to show that it's not just you know dusty artifacts on a shelf. It has a real relevance to where we are today. And, and now that we're in a resurgence of Star Trek, the fallow years are over. We've got a new golden age here with all our series coming out. It's still good to go back and look at these foundational issues because I see there's a tapestry, as we said last time you were with us. There is a there's a thread from then to now, and I just think it's illuminating. So, just as a just as a snapshot in time, what do you think when you when you see this? Because I want to talk to you about especially the fanzine corner of this flyer, but just overall, what what comes to mind as you look at this again? Uh, it is a it was a document which I did receive in the mail. <laughs> okay. Uh, which kind of puzzled me 
because it wasn't an answer to the letter that I sent. But I understood what they were talking about because at that first Star Trek convention, I was there. Uh-huh. And I felt I was hoping you were. The, yeah, at the at the then Statler Hilton. Uh which Donald Trump eventually bought and renovated. Um <laughs> 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 uh, it, it the the history is, is immense. It is enormous, but it was at that time a very old, crumbling, un um the air didn't work very well and it was but we didn't mind because it was cheap enough we could afford to go. Mm -hmm. And, but there were just way too many people to sit there. As Joni Winston told in our chap, in her chapter, in, mm -hmm. uh, well, she wrote a book about it really, um, uh, how to throw a party for 10,000 of your most intimate friends. Right. <laughs> the making of the Star Trek conventions yes. is the overline. But yes, yes. Yeah. How to throw a party. How to throw yeah. And that's exactly what it was. Tushy to tushy. We were cramped in there. But we understood from that experience that we were not alone. That was the theme of Star Trek Lives. At the first convention where I met Gene Roddenberry for the first time, I accosted him in a hallway, told him I wanted to write this book, told him what it was going to be about, why these people are in this building, why people love Star Trek this way. That was the question I set out to answer. Who, what, right. why, when, where, how many? Those are the basis of journalism, right? What did he, what did he say when you told him that? He looked me in the eye and said, do it. I'll write an introduction. There you go. I thought he would say something like, great, and when you find out, tell me. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, That's I know, Hollywood. I know, I'm being facetious. Guy, I'm being facetious. He looked me in the yeah. eye. This was not Hollywood off, call, uh, you know, I'll call you. He gave me his private, personal, household phone number, which I had on a card file mm -hmm. that I put another card in front of it so nobody could see it if they were paging through. I kept it secret. But when we finally sold the book, and Joni Winston did that, believe it or not, at a Star Trek convention in Canada, she, where she encountered Fred Paul, who said to her, remember that manuscript that I rejected a while ago? Do you still have that for sale? And she said, yes. He said, Send it in. I think we can publish it. Why did he need something Star Trek so desperately? Because James Blish had become very ill and couldn't deliver on his mm. next book. And he needed that slot. That's how publishing worked at that time and actually still does. It's like a train with cars. You have to put something on every car because it's expensive to move it. You have to put something in every slot in a bookstore because you've rented that slot. You've got to fill it or you will lose it. He needed something, anything. It's a lot like uh, movies, distribution in theaters, it, at least on that model. Exactly. However long it stays with exactly us. Exactly right. the same. And it's that model that I want to talk about. That impact of Star Trek on the marketing of fiction is what has been and is changing that very model that you just 
spoke about. But that model is what got Star Trek Lives published because he was working for a different publisher and he was publishing James Blish, who they were friends, you know, so that's right. what he, that's how James Blish got the, the job of writing the novels for a TV show that he'd never seen. <laughs> yeah. Right, and just to remind everybody, James Blish very famously in the days when no internet, no memory alpha, no no fanzines even out of the gate was simply novel. Now we talk about novelizing movie scripts and all that. I don't know how. I mean, I don't know how many times a movie was big enough to have this done, but certainly. A television no, series? No. Yeah, a television no, no. series, everybody, nobody could have scripts, nobody could have even VHS copies or DVD copies. The closest thing you could do to revisit your your episode, or your favorite episode, even before clip trading, you know, film clip trading became a thing, was to read the Blish novels. They were novels. They were novelizations, chapters, of each individual script. And he'd be working off early drafts, which is why there'd be oddball you know, details wander into his novels that, that confused people for years. But that's a whole and different wrinkle. he made wrinkle. up yeah. stuff where things were missing because he had deadlines. And a few people, a few people bought these. <laughs> a couple. <laughs> a couple. Because it was all there, and I'm being facetious, but it, because it was all, it was part of the early thunderbolt of Star Trek. No, but no, but there was no other way to experience it after the fact, after viewing a show. Well, this is what you're talking about is the fiction delivery system impact. Mm-hmm. Fanzines, science fiction fanzines before Star Trek hardly ever, ever carried any fiction, certainly not fiction based on a property owned by somebody else. Right. Uh, I published some original science fiction in science fiction magazines way back in like high school, but that was just something that wasn't done. Science fiction fanzines were nonfiction articles and personal reactions to various mm-hmm. books. People, they were book club by mail. But then what happened is Star Trek was presented at the World Science Fiction Convention to science fiction fans who were active in science fiction and who wrote, published, and drew pictures for magazines that were run off on <laughs> Even pre-Mimeo, spirit duplicators, purple ink. Right, right. Ditto stencils is what we used to get. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You could get high on the ink if your teacher had just gone down to the teacher's lounge and run that test off or that sheet off. <laughs> you, could, you could smell it coming, you, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what what happened is that with the, the, this circular, this um, uh, form response letter that we started the discussion what the the office the professional office in hollywood was so stunned so jaw-droppingly amazed so so culture shocked by the advent of fanzines and a a pre-existing network that Roddenberry knew all about that's why he went to chicago you know mm-hmm. i mean he knew he, he didn't know this would happen but he knew that if anything was going to happen it had to be these people who would make it happen. And you go to your base, like dro- as we say now. Yeah. yeah, it was like dropping a spark into dry kindling. These people were so. The, we went to movies, you know. I mean, we're science fiction fans, but we went to movies, we went to horror shows, we went to 
other kinds, war stories, any any kind of movie. We went to movies. We and and when television came along, we watched television. All the stuff that was on there, including I don't know, you know, kiddie shows, and then you grow up and you watch other things and um, mystery, right? Literature, and you and you appreciate the goods. You appreciate the diamonds. You roll your eyes at all the drivel and the crap. The, the great wasteland that they talk about for TV, and then you would like, get excited about the gems that came along. Exactly. However, there were no science fiction gems. Right. Then came along this TV show, which I have to note, we all knew, and to this day all really think about it, as Star Trek is really, really bad science fiction. But it is real science fiction. And that's what made it different from, like, after Star Trek was canceled, there came along Space 1999, and they touted that as for science, Star Trek fans. And it wasn't. It was bad horror fantasy. It wasn't <laughs> science fiction. Now, what, what was it about Star Trek that made it science fiction, that, made, that ignited this spark that became a conflagration it was spark mm -hmm. that's it that is the element that distinguishes star trek from every other proto science fiction show on tv we had an alien not just an alien but a real person who was an alien who was completely taken for granted and ex accepted by not really accepted just one of the crew. He didn't have to be accepted. He was already one of them. He went to the academy, right? He was an mm -hmm. officer. Huh? You know, I mean, he was one of them. And yet he was very, very not. Now, in the original concept, concept for this character, there were two characters. Number one, right. who was supposed to be a woman and a bridge officer, a very big no-no in on television, in movies, anywhere. This can't happen in real life. It's impossible. And he was the and Spock was the science officer who was the whiz kid, right? And they had to they had to combine right. Roddenberry had to negotiate. Which are you gonna give up? You can't have two characters who are out of the formula. Out of who are outrageous, okay? Right. Who are were intruders and will destroy the show because too many people will hate it. You can't have two of them. You're only going to have one. Which one are you going to keep? He kept Spock, which was the right decision. Eventually, he got Uhura, mm -hmm. and then he managed to build the Uhura character to where the actress, the real life person, got involved in NASA. Mm -hmm and got women involved in NASA, and now we have women everywhere. Women and other and other ethnicities, other minorities. Yeah, we're talking about Nichelle getting to uh, recruit for NASA in the 70s after Star Trek had become a phenomenon, yeah. And then, of course, start, and having Star Trek live to fight another day with sequels to the point where we did get Troy and Crusher, and then we got Janeway and on down the line, as far as that, as far as that thread in this tapestry goes. But I'm I'm looking here at this back to our flyer from the office, which is amazing. I mean, today we look at it through a lens of look at all these. These are all fan-driven, you know, pursuits because 
there was no there was no licensing there was no but there, okay there were the model kits we had the blish we were just talking about the blish novels and madly looking for something else to fill that in uh, like your book comes along but there's like this barely skeletal publishing effort don't forget there's david model gerald kits. The, oh no david uh, yes Gerald's the making of right that was that was that was competing with us well, he and, had, the making of was Stephen Whitfield, and then Jer David had written um, the world of. Book, yeah, the world of. Right. And his making but of triples the, book too. We, yes. Right. We were competing with people who had actually, who who were writing about the set and the background and the stuff that fans would want to know. Right. We were writing about the fans who wanted to know. <laughs> Which was kind of revolutionary. So I, as far as Star Trek goes, can I can I just take a second though? So we've got the section on zines here. Um, uh, Spock and Alia was actually published first published while the original series was on the air. It wasn't totally yes. a relic of after the fact. And so we've got T Negative, another famous one here. So Ruth Berman, some of these names: Deborah Langsam, Mazaform D. Um, they're the top two there. Let's just get a handle here on what are we? How many numbers are we talking about? Because we say fanzines and people just think magazine. Even even those who are like rolling their eyes now at magazines, right? Because everything is digital and online. But we're not even talking about magazines. The whole point is fanzines, fan published, not just fan produced, but fan published, and not violating copyrights. So you're not going mass production, even if you could afford it. So what are we? We're talking about numbers here. What was the original fanzine reading publishing circle? Um, I believe it started at a few hundred, and Spacanalia had to go. Uh, they they had a, a, a terrible time uh, with their mimeograph breaking. You know, and they had to go to a Gestetner powered mimeograph um, because they had to run 500 copies, and the zine kept getting thicker and thicker. Uh, yeah, I more mean, pages, you know, and so yeah, but, yeah, but. A lot of the copies were read by many people, okay? So I set out to find out how many people were really involved, and it was an impossible task. What I did was I, I put out a, a letter on carbon copy. Anybody ever remember carbon mm -hmm. copies? You type, and you can only type five onion skin cop, co copies, even on an electric typewriter, but I was using a manual at the time. And I would send these out and ask people to copy them and send them on to everybody they knew who was publishing or reading. And you would, uh, the, everybody that they were sent to would write on the paper the fanzines that they were reading that were not already on the list, would add to the list. And then they came back to me and I had to count them. And it turned out to be a totally impossible task because new ones were springing up faster than I could count them. So I put out a, um, a questionnaire to find out who, what, when, where, and how many, to, find, to get the biographies of the people, name, address, phone, phone number, whatever, to get biographies, and then where you went to school, what your degrees are, and so on. And we kind of hand analyzed the demographic data. This was almost before the invention of demographics as a science. Didn't have right. a name at that time. We just needed to find out whether it was true that only scientists were reading these things. Not fanzines. true. Well, Not yeah. true. There are a lot of, lot, of, lot of PhDs in a lot of different topics. 
uh, men, women, children, people of all ages, even older people. At that time, you know, I used to think if you had gray hair, you were old. <laughs> Well, yeah. guess what? I'm not old yet. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Well, you're trying to get a handle on exactly what is this fanzine audience and, and who's making them. So it's way broader. I mean, the original, the, 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 the circle of people that all knew each other quickly blew up as soon as conventions and things started to go a little more mass media. About, about the time of the flyer that we've got here. But this is part of the reason. When you actually went viral... It was, it was, um, that was it. It was the old school viral. It was phone calls and letters and, and see. I love it how people put CC on things today and have no idea that we're actually talking about carbon copy, carbon on the back of a piece of paper to make it's another copy. CC, right, right, right. Which increasingly yes, got yes, fainter yes. the more copies you were putting in a stack. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, it's just amazing to think that's the roots of everything we know now is we talk about fanzines blithely, but it was a very, a very small group, and the power of Star Trek is the fact that this, there was no internet, there was no social media, and yet, as I said, Star Trek pioneered all this with stone knives and bearskins. Well, you want me to, to give some, some more numbers, okay? Real quick. Um, when, when we did, well, I, I, my ambition was to have a crate story in every fanzine that came out, because I needed free fanzines because I didn't have any and money. And Kraith was your take so on Vulcan civilization and, and, yes. Right. Kraith is a series, an alternate universe Star Trek. And it's on online now. You can find it. Just Google K-R-A-I-T-H and you can read it through. Um, but the thing is that I wanted to have something in every, and I did. I had poems. I had all kinds of stuff in almost Every fan, and then it just went beyond where one person could put something in every zine. So that's why we created Crate Collected, and that happened, I believe, it was the second Star Trek convention at the Statler Hilton. I remember sitting in the audience listening to Isaac Asimov, and the woman behind me tapped me on the shoulder and said, Are you Jacqueline Lichtenberg? And I turned around and I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. And I didn't know who she was. And gave me the idea, said, we need to do a collective, Crafe Collective. We need to collect these stories because no one person owns all the things. Well, it was also somewhere on here where somebody, you got together and said, we need the idea for a glorified version of this flyer this week, which is what the Will Committee turned into. Well, that's what, you know, that's why I found it. You want me to tell the story of how I found it? Why don't we save that? Jacqueline, this is what I knew we would get into. (laughs) We're just going to have, I'm just going to have to demand (laughs) that you come back and visit with us again, if you would, please, please. (laughs) Okay, the story of the the founding of the Well Committee is another Star Trek convention. Okay, okay, well, let's, let's, I'm going to put a pin right there, and like I said, we will... We will have you back so we can spend some time with this because I want to. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm only I'm, pressing I'm pause. <laughs> not, not, not stop here. Okay. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Now, all of our documents and your chance to comment, please do, are available at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Now, for more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. 
And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. Yes, that's me. At LarryNemacek.com. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.